Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. I'm going to put us on general camera. You don't see me. Uh, it is September the 23rd, 2022, a Friday, end of the week. We've been having a number of interesting conversations about China over the last few weeks. Uh, earlier this week, we talked to the Wall Street Journal writer, correspondent, uh, Lisa Lin, um, on China's supposed new kind of surveillance, not just its surveillance government, but its surveillance economy and its surveillance economics. She's the co-author of a interesting new book with a Wall Street Journal uh, colleague, uh, Josh Chin, who was also on the show called Surveillance State. They also co-authored uh, a piece in the Wall Street Journal a few weeks ago, The Two Faces of China's Surveillance State, in which they suggested that uh, the Chinese leader uh, Xi uh, Jinping is trying, his, his grandest ambition is the creation of a new kind of modern government powered by data and mass digital surveillance. It's very intrigued with our conversation with uh, Lin. Um, I even wrote actually about something today suggesting that one of the things she said was that we have a very much, I think, an Orwellian reading of China, everything we interpret in terms of 1984 um, and uh, the future of China, imagining it as a continuation of our own history. But Lin argued that the prevalence of cameras in China, the hundreds of millions of, of cameras in China reflect perhaps the fact that Chinese companies produce these cameras and therefore the government is buying to not just to protect but to stimulate its own economy. Um, economics then and politics in China are intimately bound up with one another. I, I, I suspect that we overdo the political and underdo the economics uh, in terms of making sense of contemporary China. My guest today knows a great deal about the contemporary economics of China. Uh, he's the author of China, the bubble that never pops, uh, Tom Orlick is also the chief economist at Bloomberg, and he's joining us uh, from uh, Washington, D.C., the Bristol of the United States. Uh, Tom, welcome. Um, in terms of this perpetual tension, shall we say, between politics and economics in China, what drives the government there? Is it to make China rich or to make the Chinese government all powerful? Or, that, or is that too simplistic? Well, thanks very much, Andrew. Great to be here. Um, and uh, we'll jump into the China discussion, uh, not reflect on what the term Bristol means in rhyming slang or the implications of that for your understanding of uh, Washington, D.C., America's capital. Um, so um, there's a sort of powerful strain in thinking uh, in China, uh, which centers on concern or sort of horror, really, about China's century of humiliation. Um, so the 19th century was not a great time for China. They were invaded, they were occupied, they were humiliated. 
Um, and the sort of the lesson which Chinese intellectuals drew from that period is it's not good to be poor. If you're poor, then you're weak. And if you're weak, then in a dog-eat-dog sort of realpolitik world, people mess around with you, people take advantage of you. Um, so from that point on, there was a kind of national determination, if you like, um, starting at the, the end, of the 19, uh, end of the 19th century, stretching through the 20th century, that China should become rich. Um, not as an end in itself, um, but because to become rich was also to become powerful. Um, and so you sort of ask if it's about becoming rich or it's about becoming powerful. In China, it's really the pursuit of both of those together to become wealthy, to become powerful, the same objective in China's perspective. How different, though, is China from other parts of the world that were also humiliated by the Western powers in the 19th century? Um, so, I mean, one really important difference, of course, um, is that China's response to that has not just been a kind of determination to do something about it. They've actually delivered on that determination, uh, especially uh, during the reform era, starting with Deng Xiaoping at the end of the 1970s, beginning of the 1980s. Uh, China has really sort of engineered um, an economic miracle, um, and that's lifted them uh, from being a kind of isolated and impoverished basket case uh, to being uh, the second biggest economy in the world and on some plausible trajectories for the next 10 years, soon the biggest economy in the world. Um, now, people talk about that as an economic miracle. I just called it an economic miracle. Um, but another important thing to keep in mind is that China has delivered this enormous growth, this enormous increase in its kind of prestige and its, and its national standing um, by borrowing other people's ideas about how to organize their economy, borrowing ideas, borrowing technologies from the West, but also borrowing ideas, borrowing policies from their neighbors, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, which China, of course, regards as a rebel province. They sort of laid out the blueprint for how to take your economy from poverty and isolation to integration and rising levels of wealth. And China very much borrowed and implemented those blueprints, and that's what catapulted them forward. Don't all countries borrow, though, Tom? Um, Steve Jobs famously said, not just companies, individuals and companies themselves. Um, Steve Jobs, of course, perhaps the most innovative person in America, uh, certainly in Silicon Valley, stole lots of his ideas. Uh, the Germans stole ideas on economic development. So did the Americans from the British, the Japanese from the West, and so on. Is there anything unusual then in historical terms about how China, quote unquote, borrowed the ideas of its Asian neighbors in particular? Well, um, I, I guess I have a couple of reflections on that. Um, so the first is, if it was so easy, everyone would have done it, right? Everyone would have had the same kind of um, miraculous growth that we've seen in East Asia over the last 50, 60, 70 years. Uh, and clearly that's not happened. There are still very, very large parts of the world uh, which can see how to do it. Uh, they can see the model which is being applied elsewhere, but they've not been able to replicate it 
at home, right? Think about lots of African countries, think about lots of Latin American countries. Um, so clearly copying is not as hard as inventing, um, but also clearly it's not easy, right? Um, and then the second reflection is that China has this kind of almost unique strength, um, uh, which is just, it's absolutely enormous size. Um, and this is an advantage which is kind of so obvious um, that it was obvious um, even to Adam Smith, the kind of the great, the great father of, of modern economics. Um, when he wrote his book, The Wealth of Nations, hundreds of years ago, he said, China is so big that when they start engaging with the rest of the world and importing foreign ideas and foreign technologies, they'll be able to put those ideas to work at such enormous scale that they'll achieve massive competitive advantage, right? And that's an important part of the kind of secret source in China's growth miracle, right? If you're a small country with a tiny population, you can steal an idea, you can borrow a technology, but you're never gonna be able to produce it at a scale which gives you a comparative advantage relative to the big companies in the United States, the big companies in Japan. When China takes an idea, takes technology, and they put it to work in China's 1.4 billion person market, they can do that at such enormous scale that they get huge cost advantages. Um, and that's also been a crucial part of China's development miracle. It's taking ideas, it's taking technologies from overseas, putting them to work at enormous scale, at world beating scale, those two things together have been what propelled China forwards. Tom, the wonderful title of your book, China, the bubble that never pops, suggests that it never was a bubble because if it never pops, it's not a bubble in the first place. Is that your reading of the Chinese economy, that it wasn't a bubble, that it's a, a consequence of the size and ambition and perhaps um, historical um, realities of China um, and that our, our, our use of this term bubble reflects perhaps a, a tendency in the West to dismiss non-Western economies, particularly the Chinese? Yeah, I think you, I think you put it nicely, Andrew. Um, so, so I lived in China from 2007 uh, till 2018. Um, and uh, for most of that time, I was. And writing you were a Wall Street Journal guy, right? That's actually you I were was. introduced to me by uh, uh, by Josh Chin, uh, the author, one of the co-author of Surveillance Day. Yeah, that's right. I um, I worked for the Wall Street Journal. I worked with uh, with Josh and other colleagues uh, in Beijing. I, and then I, I moved to Bloomberg um, and uh, worked with Bloomberg's great team in in Beijing as well. Um, so for that kind of eleven years. Um, I was writing about the Chinese economy and sort of absorbing the kind of thinking on China's economy uh, and the kind of the prevailing view, the kind of the consensus that we heard from Washington, D.C. and from Wall Street was, yeah, this looks impressive. The growth numbers are impressive. Um, but if you poke a little bit beneath the surface, uh, what you discover is it's just not sustainable. Um, it's built on a foundation of debt. Um, you can't carry on taking on more and more debt. Um, and so at some point, the Chinese sort of miracle is going to be sort of revealed as a fraud. There's going to be a kind of catastrophic collapse. Uh, and China is going to join other economies on the kind of dustbin heap of history or the 
also ran list in the global economic race. Um, Japan in particular, I'm guessing. Well, well, exactly. People point to the Japan analogy. Um, so as I was kind of packing my bags um, in sort of 2017, 2018, I had a kind of a rare moment of self-awareness. And I thought, thought to myself, well, this story that we've been writing about the coming collapse of China for the last decade um, doesn't seem to be playing out, right? We've been, we've been saying it's not sustainable. We've been saying the bubble's going to burst. Um, but it never seems to burst. Um, so what I wanted to do in the book um, was explain problems, uh, and there are a lot of problems in China's economy, um, but also talk about how perhaps here in Washington DC, um, how on Wall Street, um, we don't recognize the strengths of China's economy. We just did a show earlier today, um, uh, Tom, with... Uh... A RAND analyst, Brian Michael Jenkins, has a book of a new book out about plagues and their aftermath. We talked about COVID and we talked about China, actually. You have an interesting piece out um, on Bloomberg, which you co-authored, uh, China crushed COVID, but COVID zero could crush China. Are you in the bubble business now, too, about suggesting that even though China overcame COVID, that eventually it's going to catch up with it and eventually reality is going to hit China? So there's been a kind of a really interesting uh, sort of shift in the way the world has seen the kind of the COVID responses of China on one hand um, and the West on the other. Um, and I think it, it sort of goes something like this. Um, in 2020 and 2021, um, it looked like the Chinese system and the capacity of the single party state to mobilize society into a kind of coordinated fight against the virus was the right response. China saved lives. Very few people died from COVID in China. They got their economy going again. Um, and here in the West, we didn't seem to be able to do it, right? And so we had, you know, a tragic number of deaths and our economies suffered a sort of crushing blow. Um, and so Xi Jinping in 2020 said, COVID, it demonstrates again the superiority um, of the socialist system. Um, now, here we are in 2022, and things look really different, right? America has opened up again. Europe has opened up again. We're back in our offices. We're back in schools. Um, and uh, our innovation systems produce the best-in-class vaccines. Um, and China, unfortunately, is still stuck with lockdowns, Shanghai, Beijing, Shenzhen, Chengdu, massive Chinese cities, all suffering from draconian lockdowns this year. Um, their innovation systems haven't been able to produce the vaccines which they need to kind of give their population a measure of immunity. So the narrative has changed again, right? And now no one is saying, yes, this demonstrates the superiority of the Chinese single state model. Um, people are saying, well, actually, this demonstrates the kind of the rigidity um, and the lack of innovative capacity uh, of the Chinese model. Um, in fact, I'm not sure either framing is quite correct. Um, I think I would make the case um, that actually neither side has got this at all right. Uh, perhaps there's no right response uh, to a pandemic. Um, and in fact, what we had demonstrated um, is that both the US model, which failed to contain the virus uh, and suffered so many deaths, um, and the Chinese model, which is stuck in this sort of rigid COVID zero space 
um, while the rest of the world opened up, perhaps the pandemic has revealed weaknesses on both sides. I mean, my sense is that actually the, the Chinese model of a wise technocracy to give it the best case scenario, which it's borrowed from Singapore, seems to have come out of COVID much stronger than the the neoliberal model, which is still basically being pursued in the United States and the United Kingdom. And I think I think if he, if we were having this conversation six months ago, uh, or I guess nine months ago at the end of 2021, um, I think I would agree with you um, on that. And I think a lot of people would agree with you on that. But in the last nine months, um, the rest of the world has returned to kind of something like life as normal. Um, in China, Shanghai, Beijing, Shenzhen, Chengdu, they've all suffered from lockdowns. Um, there's a very high probability that if there's more cases, we'll see other big cities in China going through lockdown. Um, and China does not yet have a strategy for exiting from COVID zero, right? Um, they have a COVID-9 population. They haven't built up natural immunity. They haven't got good vaccines, so they haven't been able to get vaccine-based immunity. Um, and that raises the question, well, how do they get out of this, right? In a, in a positive scenario for them, we get some more contagious but less deadly variants of, of the virus. China gets some advanced vaccines, they get some advanced treatments, and they can ultimately exit from COVID zero without facing a huge cost in human life. Uh, and of course, you know, that's the outcome which uh, we all very much want to see for, for the Chinese people. Um, but that's far from guaranteed, right? We still don't know how they get out of COVID zero. Tom, there seems to be two interpretations of whether or not the US and China, the two dominant 21st century economies and political powers coexist in the 21st century. The first, and I'm sure you're familiar with both these arguments, is from conservatives like Aaron Friedberg, whose book, A Contest for Supremacy, suggests that it's a zero-sum game, either China wins or America wins, and that there's no compromise. The other is from another guest we had recently, C. Fred Bergstrom, who, who argues in his book, um, The United States versus China, The Quest for Global Economic Leadership, that both the US and China are profoundly um, invested in the global economic order so that they have many common interests. What's your interpretation? Uh, maybe I'm oversimplifying a little bit. But can America and China coexist as global economic powers in the 21st century without going to war? So I think your framing is, is the right one. And I think what's interesting here is that the politics and the business communities are in different places on how they think about this, right? Um, so on the political side, um, I think increasingly um the view is that there isn't a world of playing nicely together right um that this is a zero-sum competition and, and biden seems to be increasingly described as a china hawk in this context yeah i mean the entire u.s political spectrum has has pivoted right um uh sharply uh from a world which under obama uh, was still a world where 
we can get along with China, we have common interests, uh, China perhaps is even on a kind of a path, if not to democratic reform, at least to kind of market reform, that was the kind of the consensus view under Obama, um, to a worldview now, um, which has very much been shaped by Donald Trump's um, right. uh, claim that actually no, uh, China is our kind of implacable enemy and we have mutually incompatible systems. Um, so I think that's kind of very much the prevailing view amongst the kind of policymakers here in Washington, D.C. Um, in the business in the business world, um, supply chains are still deeply enmeshed um, in China. Um, you're not getting an iPhone or an iPad or any type of electronics, really, uh, which hasn't uh, come through the Chinese system one way or another. Um, and so there's very much the sort of the view still remains that this is an integrated world uh, and we have to get along together. Right. Um, so I think something's got to give. Right. Either the government view that we're mutually incompatible and we have to separate and it's a zero sum, sum game has to give um, or the business view that in the end we can all get along and carry on doing business together has to give. Um, we can't have both of them uh, at the same time for a sustained period. Um, one interesting bit of news I saw recently was that Apple uh, are thinking about a much more significant move of their supply chain um, out of China into India, uh, perhaps suggesting that it's going to be the business view, which aligns with the political view, uh, not the other way around. Can China change its economy, uh, Tom? We've done so many shows on Amelia Pang has a book out, Made in China, which is essentially uh, built on the idea of Chinese, the Chinese economy as a vast slave labor camp. Um, Joanna Chu has a similar book, a new book out on China Unbound, A New World Disorder. One of the things that occurred to me talking to Lisa Lin, who's another of your Wall Street Journal ex-colleagues, was um, that the Chinese economy is quickly changing. It's not just based on uh, producing parts for iPhones. It's built now on the development of manufacture of surveillance cameras. Can China really become Silicon Valley? And might that benefit everybody, the Chinese and the West collectively? Well, I mean, it's, it's just very clear that China's economy has changed enormously over the last few decades, right? If we go back to 1980, it was an agricultural economy uh, with no capacity to make anything but the very, very simplest um, uh, manufactured goods. Um, now, uh, China is a world leader in uh, sustainable energy, a world leader in uh, high-speed trains. Uh, Chinese researchers are at the forefront of thinking like about things like um, AI. Um, and in fact, one of the reasons why there's now so much tension and hostility between China and the United States is precisely because China's economy has gone through such a rapid evolution, right? Um, it was all very well here in Washington, D.C., welcoming China's rise when China was growing quickly, but still pretty tiny compared to the United States. It's quite another thing welcoming China's rise when China is 70, 80% the size of the United States economy um, and very likely um, on some projections uh, to overtake in the next decade. So that's the think, chip war. 
that's the chip war yeah um i think the other thing to the other thing to keep in mind i think the sort of one of the one of the sort of themes which i try and hit in my book um is the capacity of china's leadership um to reinvent the model right um so in 1980, uh, China didn't have anything which looked like a market economy, right? Plan um, goods production was planned by the state. Prices were set by the state. There was no commercial banking system. Over the course of the 1980s, they fixed all of those problems. Over the course of the 1990s, um, they closed a bunch of really old, inefficient state-owned enterprises. Um, they recapitalized the banks, they entered the World Trade Organization uh, and laid the foundation for a period of growth driven by exports and a larger role uh, for the private sector. Um, in response to the great financial crisis, which left the US and many European economies facing years of really, really weak growth and high unemployment, they launched an absolutely enormous stimulus, which left them with a bunch of problems, but kick-started their growth, kick-started global growth. Um, and in the last few years, um, they've done other stuff. Uh, for example, they had a huge problem of overcapacity in their real estate sector, um, and they dealt with it in this sort of unusual, innovative, authoritarian way. They went to a bunch of people living in sort of dilapidated old homes and they said, guess what? We're going to tear down your home uh, and give you a voucher so you can buy a new apartment. Um, not the sort of thing you could do, ever do in a democracy, certainly not the sort of thing you could ever do in the United States. It's a very heavy-handed authoritarian approach to dealing with the problem. But by doing that, they not only gave millions of people substantially better accommodation, they also dealt with a big problem of having lots of new property, which was unoccupied. Um, so... The economy is like unrecognizable from 1980 to today. Um, that's a reflection of some good luck and some support from the rest of the world. Um, but it's also a reflection of a Chinese kind of policy apparatus, which is able to think innovatively, to solve problems, to deliver on development. Um, so as we sort of think about where we are now, where there's just a huge amount of pessimism uh, about the outlook for China, um, I think it's also important to reflect on that kind of past history of encountering and solving problems. As you suggest, and perhaps the subtitle of the book, uh, The Bubble That Never Pops, is never write China off. The politics are always, of course, in the headlines, lots of headlines today about the relationship between Xi and Putin over Ukraine. Uh, you had an interesting piece uh, on Bloomberg about how the and I'm quoting here, the U.S.-China war over Taiwan may already be lost, lost for the Americans, not for the Chinese. When we think about Xi, Tom, um, how, how much input does he get from the business community? He's not a man who we know very much about. I, I'm doing a, a show uh, early next month with Adrian Geiges, uh, uh, a German journalist who has a new book out about him. They're very, there's very little known about this man. He's certainly not uh, a wannabe Stalin. Does he have close ties to the business community? H how does he govern and how is he making his decisions? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, so um, 
one of the things that Deng Xiaoping did, China's great reformer, um, is change the way in which um, uh, leadership successions happen in China. Um, so Deng was really worried about a return to the kind of chaos and dysfunction of the Mao Zedong era. Um, and so what he thought he should do is make sure that there was a process for orderly leadership succession in China. So he said, okay, after I go, all of our leaders are going to have two terms and then they're out. Um, and that worked pretty well. Hu Jintao, uh, Jiang Zemin, uh, they both followed Deng's two-term rule. Um, and that made China kind of unique amongst single-party states. It was a single-party state, but they had this kind of orderly um, and from the perspective of good governance, healthy turnover at the top of the leadership. Very different, for example, from a North Korea or Russia under uh, under Putin. Um, now, at October in in October this year, October the sixteenth, there's going to be a party congress in China, um, and very likely Xi Jinping is going to get anointed for a third term as president. So he's going to break the two-term rule uh, which Deng Xiaoping has put in place. Um, so is, that, is it going to be a kind of night and day transition? Are we going to wake up on October the 17th and find that kind of standards of governance in China have completely collapsed and it's kind of returned to chaos and dysfunction? Absolutely not. Um, but when we look at the experience of China under Mao, uh, when we look at other countries where there's been a, senior, a top leader who stayed in place for a really long time, um, we do often see that associated with a deterioration in governance standards. Um, uh, a, a, a lack of willingness, for example, to consult with the business community and the financial community about policies and what impact they're going to have on the economy. Um, so I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not a political expert, um, uh, but one thing that I'm going to be looking for uh, post-October the 16th, and this is a kind of on a multi-year trajectory, not on a, you know, multi-week trajectory, um, is how does that look? Does governance in China still look kind of pragmatic? Does it appear consultative? Um, is it self-writing? Do they kind of make mistakes, but then realize it and then get back onto the right track? Or do we start to see it ossifying? Do we start seeing a leadership which stops listening to outside voices, which can't correct mistakes when they make them? Uh, I think your your wisdom on China, Tom, is, is really essential. I think uh, Trump's probably his most lasting damaging legacy will be how he's ended the debate about China. Um, how, final question for you, I mean, everyone needs to read your book, China, the Bubble That Never Pops. Uh, but how do we normalize China in the eyes of policymakers, particularly in the United States? How can China become like us? Yeah, I think that's a really great question, Andrew. And I think part of the problem here is that we kind of we view China through this angry red mist, we're, right? We're kind of like we're Democrats, they're authoritarians, we're capitalists, they're socialists. Um, and we sort of have this, you know, us and them uh, kind of Freudian other uh, view of China, which makes it really difficult to understand um, Sort of how they're thinking about things and so it also makes it very difficult for us to arrive at compromises and uh and, and find collaborative solutions to problems um i think sort of one fundamental thing that we could do 
um, is, is recognize um, that China's plan is not to overtake the United States, right? That is not their kind of objective. China's plan is to develop their economy um, and deliver a higher standing of standard of living for their people um, and secure their borders. Um, and in the process of doing that, they will very likely become a bigger economy than the United States, right? Not because of some nefarious plot to usurp the United States position, just because their population is four times bigger. And so they only need to be a quarter as wealthy on a per capita basis to be the biggest economy in the world. Perhaps, um, I know you're, you, you used to work at the Journal, another of your former colleagues, Eric Schwartzel, written a book about Chinese investment in Hollywood, uh, Red Carpet. And final, final question, uh, Tom, you talked about what the West needs to do. What would you like to see very briefly in China in the next three to five years? If, so, if, if, Xi, if, 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 if Xi Jinping is watching, I'm sure he's busy, but if he has a chance to watch this, uh, what would you tell him? So I, I think China's got three things. It's need, China has three challenges it needs to address. Um, uh, so the first is exiting from COVID zero. Um, now, as you noted, Andrew, COVID zero has been really successful in saving lives, but the cost for the economy is becoming increasingly difficult to bear. And there's the big unanswered question, how do they get out of it without in the end suffering, you know, something like the same loss of life that we've encountered here in the US and Europe? So first big unanswered question, how do they exit from COVID zero? I think we want to see a plan, right? We want to see a plan for how to do that. Second huge challenge they have uh, is the real estate sector. Um, so I talked about the big work they did on kind of getting people out of slums into new apartments and how that had dealt with part of the problem, but it hasn't dealt with all of the problem. They've still got huge overcapacity in the real estate sector. Um, and what that means is in the years ahead, there's going to be less real estate building and real estate building has been a big driver of China's growth. Um, so I think we also need to see a plan for how they're going to address that challenge. Um, and then I think the third challenge, or perhaps this is going to be the hardest one uh, from China's perspective, um, it's, a kind of, it's a kind of political challenge, right? Um, the Hu Jintao administration uh, sort of came to be seen as kind of so consensus-oriented, so consultative, um, that it became ineffective and wasn't able to do big things. Um, the Xi Jinping administration, I think many people would say, has gone too far in the other direction, too far in the direction of kind of strongman rule, um, all that means. Um, I think the kind of the challenge going forward, I don't think China's going to become a democracy. I think the challenge is to find some kind of happy medium between that Hu Jintao consultative model and the Xi Jinping get things done model. Wise words, wise advice from a wise man, Thomas Orlick, the author of China, The Bubble That Never Pops. Congratulations, Tom. The book came out last year. Congratulations also on all the, the great work you're doing at Bloomberg. Uh, any other suggestions for further reading, either on China or the world, that's making us wiser, more, more reasonable, more educated, more informed? 
Um, so can I can I suggest a couple of things that uh, maybe are in the sp sort of spirit of fun rather than the spirit oh, of uh, Tom, information? You're you're in charge here. You're my Xi Jinping. You can do whatever you like on this ship. Okay, I'd sooner be your Deng Xiaoping than your Xi Jinping, but I guess I'll, I'll take it. Rather, um, well, you can be so, him too. Um, so, um, so the first one is I'm I'm a huge fan of Thomas Pynchon. I, I kind of grappled with uh, mm. Gravity's Rainbow. Um, uh, during my during my student days, I can't say I understood it understood it terribly well. Um, Pynchon's latest book, which isn't isn't actually that recent, it, it came out a, a, a decade or so ago. It's called Inherent Vice, um, and it's kind of Pynchon's take on the Raymond Chandler detective novel. Um, it's a lot of fun. Uh, Pynchon appears to have sort of mellowed a bit in his old age, so it's a much more accessible read but still has the kind of you know the jokes and the kind of lively intellectual play uh from the earlier pension so i enjoyed inherent vice uh, a lot and i recommend that one um and then the second is um i'm a huge fan of the morris sendak books uh, mm. where the wild things are um outside over there uh, in the night kitchen um and uh there's just been a kind of uh a kind of an exhibition of Morris Sendak's work by a big gallery. Uh, and as part of that, they put together a book called Wild Things Are Happening, um, which brings together a bunch of Morris Sendak's art from his books, from theater designs. I didn't know this, but Morris Sendak did designs for sort of plays and things like that. And a bunch of essays and interviews with people who, who knew him and have great insights into his work. So Wild Things Are Happening uh, sort of Big book of Morris Sendak art. That's my second recommendation.